Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Pretty much um, everything I've learned that I know how to do, I learn by example. Whether it's working on a car, playing a game, playing a sport, doing counseling, even preaching. Thirty years ago, when I was in seminary, we used to take the transcriptions of a preacher named David Roper, and we would work through them and fig- look at his introduction, how he did that, the body, and how he dealt with the text, and I learned a lot of what I know about preaching from the example of David Roper. Well, the Apostle Paul understands that, that a lot of what we learn, we learn by example. And... Uh, In 3.17 of Philippians, we're not there yet, but just let me read the verse. He says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. You see, much of what we learn about how to live the Christian life, we learn by following others, by following examples. Now, some of you might say, well, I don't have any good examples in my life that I'm close to. I don't know who to imitate. There, there aren't any real godly people that I know really are ones that I should follow to, to learn to follow Christ. And let me say that you do have a good example. Last week we saw how Paul was calling the Philippians to live a life of other-centeredness, giving their lives away. And I gave the example of Mother Teresa. But Paul goes on in the passage today that Laura just read to you to give us the greatest example, the example that we all have for how to live the Christian life the way God wants us to. And that example, of course, is Jesus himself. And this passage, it's, uh, I had to wear a tie today because in a sense this is holy ground. This passage, it's amazing. It's one of the greatest passages in the Bible for understanding the heart of Jesus as he went to the cross. It's one of the greatest passages that actually has transformed the way I look at God. I often pray through this passage, almost every day, in fact, as I meditate on who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So let's pray as we prepare to dig in and let God speak to our hearts, shall we? Lord, thank you for the example of Jesus. 
who came and emptied himself, humbled himself, and gave his life away as an example to us. So as we look at this, may our hearts be open to see you with fresh eyes, Lord Jesus, and may our lives be changed as we learn to imitate and follow you. We pray in your precious and holy name. Amen. Passage begins, verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, imitate Jesus. But not just his actions, but his attitude. Literally, it's think this way in yourselves the way Jesus did. Have the same way of thinking that Jesus did. Therefore, as we go through this, we're to pay close attention to Jesus' attitude, to his way of thinking. And if we do, we'll be able to, I believe, have a greater sense of what it means to live in unity in the body of Christ and to truly follow him and live with the joy and fulfillment that he calls us to as believers, as followers of Jesus. So what do we need to think to think like Jesus? What attitude is he saying that we need to have? Now, we're clearly not God. He is. And yet there's attitudes. Paul says, have this attitude which was in Christ. So we are to imitate him. So what are we to imitate? Well, I want to highlight a number of things in this passage. But first, we begins this way. Who, although he existed in the form of God. Now, what this is saying, the idea of he existed, that means he has always existed in the form of God. And the word form doesn't mean outward form. It means the true essential nature of something, literally the characteristics and qualities essential to something. So Jesus had the essential quality of God from the beginning of time to the end of time. Fully God. There's religions who claim he is not God or that he was a created being. He, that is wrong. He always existed as God. He existed from the beginning of time to the end of time as God, as the very nature, essential nature of God. Even though he took on a form of man, as we'll look at in a moment, yet he continued to be in nature God. Like if you take a car and you repaint it, and you put a spoiler on it, and you rebuild parts of it, you do all kinds of things, its essential nature is still a car, no matter how much you've changed it. If you do an extreme makeover, and you have a facelift, and you redo your hair, and you do all kinds of things, you're still you, your essential nature. God's essential nature, Jesus' essential nature is as God, always. From the beginning of time to the end of time, when he became a man and all in between, he was never, he was not created, he was pre-existent. And that's what that phrase means. He existed in the form of God. But although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be grabbed onto. That word's used for plunder or robbery, somebody robbing a house. It means to grab onto something for your own use. He did not regard equality with God something to be grabbed hold of, to grab hold of power, control, my rights. It says Jesus did not regard that grasping 
as equality with God. Now let me set the context here a little bit historically because I think it helps us understand why this is so significant, what Paul is saying here. In Philippi, which was part of the Roman Empire, but it was also part of Greece, there were a lot of gods that people worshipped. There was a mixture of Greek gods and Roman gods, and if you've ever studied Greek mythology, you understand some of what I'm talking about. But there, and there were local gods besides the national gods, and then you were meant to worship Caesar as well as a god, the emperor of Rome. And so you had this whole mixture of gods that people were required to worship. Now these gods, if you read the stories of the gods, it's interesting that they are really just like us. We always create gods in our own image. They're always fighting with each other. <laughs> They're always grasping for power, manipulating, fighting. Uh, there's a lot of immorality in the lives of these gods as you read their stories. Zeus, who is considered the pinnacle, the, the most powerful of all the gods, had a number of affairs that he hid from his wife. And he would manipulate her to get his way. And there were all kinds of these things going on. So these are the kinds of gods that they worshipped. And every household had their own little mantle with their little gods on it that they would worship and they would pray to these gods. They had not only the major gods, but they had gods of the harvest and gods of the sun and gods of the rain. And if they needed more rain, they would do little offerings and sacrifices to that particular god so that their crops would be healthy. And they would make vows. And if, you, if, if the god gives me what I want, then I promise you I'll do this. And so it was this whole scheme of trying to somehow control these gods that were very arbitrary and selfish and grasping for power. That's all they knew that gods were like. Now, it's interesting that we tend, as I said, we humans tend to make gods in our own image. And I've seen a lot of us as Christians who see our God in a similar light. Well, if I do this and this and this, then maybe I'll get what I want out of my life. So I'll work hard to be a good Christian and I'll do this and I'll go to church and maybe, and maybe then, you know, and, or we make promises to God, you know, vows. Oh, God, if you'll do this for me, then I promise I'll go to church for a year. Or whatever. You see, we approach our God just the same way. And you may say, well, we, at least we don't have gods on our mantles, right? Little figures that we worship. Well, we have plenty of idols in our culture, don't we? Just like they had. Now, we don't have those visible idols typically, but we have plenty of gods. We have the gods of money, the gods of romance. We think, ah, if I can just find somebody to love me, you know, then my life will work. And so I'll do what I can to try to make that happen. Or if I just get more money, I'll be happy. Or if I can just have a healthy family, if my kids turn out okay, then I'll be okay. And we look to all these other things for life. Or sometimes we look to celebrities, a Michael Jackson, for example. I don't know how many times I heard on the news reports about people saying, oh, he was a god. We have all these things, our idols, that we worship and look to. And if you think about it, every one of those gods, those idols, whether it's money or success or our own intellect or whatever, they are grasping, they are demanding, they demand something of us. 
If we want to get blessed, if we want money, boy, we're going to have to work for it. And then, But they never quite satisfy. So we have idols too, just like they did. But notice what it says here. Paul says, but Jesus is like no other God. He was not grasping. Equality with God for him was not grasping, not holding on to his rights, not demanding his rights. You see, he gave us a picture of God that is totally different than anything we've ever manufactured or tried to follow. Because Jesus is one who did not grasp. Remember the temptation in Matthew 4 where Satan came to Jesus in the wilderness when he hadn't eaten for 40 days. He said, turn these rocks into bread. And he said, no. No, I will not do that. He said, I will give you all power and authority if you'll just worship me. Jesus said, no. You see, the temptation was to grasp for himself, to take control, to use his power for his own ends. And yet Jesus refused to do that. He's a God who does not grasp for himself, does not take for himself. Though every other God that exists is like that. You see, what Jesus is showing us is that the essence of God, if you really want to understand the heart of God and the heart of Jesus, then you need to realize he's not one who grasps power and authority and control for himself. That's not the essence of God. The essence of God is very different than grasping. So what is equality with God then if it's not grasping for yourself so that you have power and control over others like human beings live, like the pagans' gods live? What does it mean to be equal with God? What is the very heart of God? How is it expressed? He says it's through emptying himself, making himself nothing is the NIV translation. But he emptied himself. He made himself nothing, verse 7, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. What does it mean to empty himself? That word means to pour out, to pour out his life. What did he do? Well, he explains it. He gives us two explanations of what it means that Jesus poured out his life for us. It says, first, he took the very nature of a slave, a bondservant, So notice the contrast. Unlike anybody else would in our culture or an idol or a god or anything, rather than grasping authority and power for himself, he took on the essence of a slave. But something's very interesting here in the construction is that what he's saying is he took on his very nature as a slave, that that was always his nature. Do you get what, I, what he's saying here? Even though he's God, the very nature of God's heart is not one who grasps. The very nature of God's heart is one who gives himself away for the sake of others. That is the very nature of God. And so when it says Jesus emptied himself and took that on, it simply means he came to earth and expressed it to us so we could see what God was really like. The word here for slave, doulos, a slave in the Roman Empire had no rights or privileges. So rather than grasping for his rights, 
Jesus released all his rights and took the lowest position. That was his choice. That was his essential nature. And then it says, being made in the likeness of men. He became human. He became one of us. See, Jesus, who existed in the form of God, absolutely had all the rights and authority and power of God. He could have expressed that. He could have grasped for that. He lowered himself to reveal himself as a servant, bondservant. And then he lowered himself even further, God himself becoming one of us. One of us becoming human. I want to read something. J.B. Phillips, who has a translation of the New Testament, a paraphrase, gives this description of how this might have looked in heaven. The little angel was beginning to be tired and a little bored. He had been shown whirling galaxies and blazing suns, infinite distances in the deadly cold of interstellar space. And to his mind, there seemed to be an awful lot of it all. (laughs) Finally, he was shown the galaxy of which our planetary system is but a small part. As the two of them drew near to the star, which we call our sun, and to its circling planets, the senior angel pointed to a small and rather insignificant sphere turning very slowly on its axis. It looked as dull as a dirty tennis ball to the little angel, whose mind was filled with the size and glory of what he had seen. I want you to watch that one particularly, said the senior angel, pointing with his finger. Well, it looks very small and rather dirty to me, said the little angel. What's special about that one? That, replied his senior solemnly, is the visited planet. Visited, said the little one. You don't mean visited by, indeed I do. That ball, which I have no doubt looks to you small and insignificant and not perhaps over clean, has been visited by our young Prince of Glory. And at these words, he bowed his head reverently. See, Jesus lowered himself to become a human being. It's been likened to one of us for the sake of the ants becoming an ant, lowering ourselves, God himself becoming one of us to save us, to reveal himself to us. God himself becoming one of us so that he could reveal to us what God is really like. That in his glory, he's not one who grasps, but in his glory, he's one who gives his life away. That's our God. But he's not done yet. So what did Jesus do? He emptied himself, though he was fully God. And he became a man, but as a man, he humbled himself. He was fully God and fully man at the same time, a great mystery. But as a man, he humbled himself. Verse 8, being found in appearance as a man. What does this mean? It means that he did not give up his godness. He continued to be God, though he was fully human as well. Therefore, he could relate to everything we go through. He didn't lose his deity. He remained fully God, but also fully human. And it says he did two things as a man in verse 8. He humbled 
himself. He humbled himself. You see, if we look carefully at this, carefully at what he did, we'll understand more fully what it means to be a fully, a full, godly, whole, complete man or woman. Jesus is showing us what it means to be truly human as God created us to be. It says, first of all, he humbled himself. What does it mean to humble yourself? Well, this means to set aside your rights and take the lowest position. Literally, it means to lower yourself, to place others above yourself. Remember last week, the early part of the chapter where he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Regard others as above you, more important than you. That's what Jesus did. He humbled himself, placed himself. He became a man. And and think about it for a minute. He had people clamoring because they were so impressed with Jesus, clamoring to make him a king. Well, if you're going to be a man, God, well, we'll make you the greatest man. We'll make you the king over all men. And Jesus said, no, as a man, I will humble myself and place others above me. I will take the lowest position. They wanted to make him a human king, but instead he became a humble man. The second thing he did, verse 8, is he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Who did he obey? Jesus, as a human being, was God, and yet he chose to live an obedient life. Obedient to whom? His heavenly Father, right? We see that all through the scriptures, but just let me remind you from John chapter 8, where Jesus says this, verse 28 and 29, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own initiative. But I speak these things as the Father taught me. He says, when you lift me up on the cross, then you'll understand that I am obedient to my Father. I only do what He tells me to do. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So Jesus chose to be an obedient man. He obeyed his heavenly Father, but he obeyed not just doing the right things, but he obeyed, it says, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now let me again remind you, Jesus, as God could have maintained his authority and power. Instead, he did not grasp, but instead lowered himself to live his life as a slave, took the attitude of a servant of whomever he met, became human, then lowered himself as the lowest of humans, humbled himself as a human, and then lowered himself to become the least of all humans. That's really what it means to be, when it says death, on a cross. He gave up the crown and took up the cross instead. Now, you may understand the cross and what that means. You may not, but let me just explain it. It it was a terribly cruel means of execution. But it was far more than that. It was a public display of absolute humiliation. When someone was crucified, it was a way of saying this person is disgusting as a human being. 
they are a complete reject. It destroyed not just their physical life, but their reputation, their family, their future of their family. It destroyed everything. And we're told that for a Jew, to be hung on a tree meant you were cursed by God. That's how the Jews looked at it. Verse Deuteronomy chapter 21 says that. It says, If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. Deuteronomy 21. So for a Jew and for a Roman, to be hung on a cross meant you were a despicable, rejected human being. You need to understand what this means. If you were, we, we like to wear crosses. We display crosses. But if you were in ancient Rome at this time and you were wearing a cross, it would literally be like wearing an obscenity. It would be like carrying around your neck human excrement that was utterly disgusting and rejected. I, I'm being vivid here because that's what the cross meant. That's what Jesus took on. He obeyed to the point of taking on the cross. He did not just lower himself to be a human, but he lowered himself as a human to be the lowest of a human for you and for me. That is the true nature of the God we serve. That is his attitude that lowers himself and lowers himself and lowers himself, never grasping for his own ends. It's a downward movement. Not upward mobility, but downward mobility. Henry Nouwen describes it this way as he talks about Christian leadership following Jesus' example. He says, The way of the Christian leader is not the way of upward mobility in which our world has invested so much, but the way of downward mobility ending on the cross. This might sound morbid and masochistic, but for those who have heard the voice of the first love and said yes to it, the downward moving way of Jesus is the way to the joy and peace of God, a joy and peace that is not of this world. It's not a leadership of power and control, but a leadership of powerlessness and humility in which the suffering servant of God, Jesus Christ, is made manifest in our lives. So Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So how did God the Father respond to this? To his downward mobility, his movement from living in the Father's presence to the lowest of humanity. The Father did two things. We see in verse 9, God also highly exalted him. For this reason, because of what Jesus did, God highly exalted him. This is a position of superiority above every other power and authority. God was so delighted. He said, oh Jesus, because you displayed for the world to see what God is really like, what my nature is really like as a servant, as one who is humble, as one who gives his life away so that people can know forever what I am really like. I am so delighted. I am highly exalting you above every name. 
the place of absolute authority so that Jesus himself could declare after the resurrection, and it's the power of the resurrection that proves he is raised above every name, has all power and authority. Jesus said, Matthew 28:18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. There is no other rival authority. Satan has no power over him, no nation, no king, no spiritual force. Nothing has power over him. He has all authority and power. The Father has raised him above all. And then this is astounding to me. He bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Now anybody who understood the Old Testament at all reading this would say, I know what the name is. The name that's above every name. It's Yahweh. The one true revealed name of God. You see, Jesus was already God, right? He existed in the form of God. But Yahweh had a special position of glory. And so the Father said, I will share that glory with you now, Jesus. You will have the name, Yahweh, above all, because you have shown humanity what I am really like. You will receive the glory that I have, the name. You are Yahweh, and I'm declaring it now. He was so delighted in Jesus' humble obedience. So that's how the Father responded. How will humanity respond to Jesus? So that, verse 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Any spiritual being, any living creature on earth, anything in the underworld or anybody who's already passed away, already died, every knee will bow. That means that there is no creature anywhere that will not eventually bend the knee to Jesus and acknowledge that he is Lord. Now, some of us choose to do that on earth, don't we? We bow before him and acknowledge him as Lord, as the one with all authority. What he's saying here is there will come a time where every knee will bow, and if you don't bow willingly here, then you will bow as a conquered enemy who will be forced on your knees before Jesus himself as a conquered enemy. And it says every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh, is Lord. To confess that he is Lord is to have to admit finally in the end, you really are the Lord. You really are Yahweh. You really are God. You really are above all. Not me, I'm not. Caesar is not. Money is not. Success is not. Status is not. Only you, Jesus, are Lord. And every Every creature will bow the knee and will confess that he is Lord, either willingly because they've already accepted him or against their will as a conquered enemy. Now, here's what I love. The way it ends, <laughs> little phrase at the end, don't miss this. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus will re 
because he descended down, 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 and the Father glorified him and gave him an equal name with him, you know what happens in the end? Jesus gives that glory right back to the Father. Because again, that's his essential nature as one who doesn't grasp the glory for himself, but he gives it right back to the Father. That's the God that we serve. So verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. So what's he calling us to? Well, let me say first of all, there's some here who have never truly bowed the knee to Jesus. Maybe you've been religious, maybe you've gone to church all your life, but you've never really bowed down and said, I want you to make me like you, Jesus. I want you to take over and be Lord of my life. I want to bow the knee to you now. I want to confess you as Lord now so I won't be forced to when you come again. Let me appeal to you. This is the God we serve who loved you enough to come down to our level and below our level. (laughs) So bow the knee now. Don't wait. If you have not submitted to him as Lord, do it now. Your eternal destiny lies in the balance. Talk to somebody after the service if you don't know how to do that, if you need encouragement, or if you have done that just recently or today, talk to somebody. Let them know so they can pray for you and encourage you. How can we have this attitude as believers? Well, meditate on him. Think about what it means for me to be like him, to not grasp for authority, power, not hang on to my rights, but to lower myself, to take the lowest position. What does it look look like for you and me to do that, to stop grasping? Because this is the true route to joy and unity and happiness. What else can we do to take on the attitude of Jesus? We can learn to recognize the prompting of Jesus in our hearts. Anytime you feel as a believer that I need to defend myself, I need to hang on to my rights. I need, I need, understand that is not Jesus. Anytime you feel led to give up your rights, to put others first, to focus on their needs above your own, that is the prompting of Jesus in your soul, leading you to follow him and be like him. And here's the great promise. In the end, he will exalt you. As Jesus was exalted. In the end, he will exalt you as you learn to humble yourself, empty yourself, give up your rights. He will exalt you in due time. Of course, in the end, you'll give all the glory back to him. Because that's what God-like people do. But what a day that will be. Let's pray. Thank you for this perfect example of what it means to live a godly life. Help us to not be graspers, but to truly follow your example, Lord Jesus, to give ourselves away. To lower ourselves, to humble ourselves so that others might see you in us. And Lord, if there's anyone here who has not yet bowed the knee to Jesus to really make him Lord, not just be religious, we're not talking about that, but to truly come to you and submit their lives to you. 
Help them to do that now. We thank you in Jesus' name.